Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Thursday, September 13th, 2018. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, the fallout from the Apple event, Google kills another beloved product, the Nintendo Switch online service comes online, and where in the world is Larry Page? Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. So thanks to everyone that tweeted at me overnight that I accidentally said the iPhone XS Max was 10 and a half inches. Yeah, that would truly be ginormous. By the way, that was my flub. Chris's script had it right. But in my defense, we were rushing and, you know, trying to keep all of the different model numbers straight at the same time, which leads me to not a particularly fresh hot take. Yes, everyone is grousing about how confusing the iPhone lineup is now. And honestly, listening back right after I posted at 5.30 last night, even I was like, wait, did we get this right? Do I even understand this? I think the best way to think of this situation is to imagine that your mom comes to you and is like, I need to get a new phone. Which iPhone should I get? Actually, we're probably going to have that conversation in real life soon. So in that scenario, what do I say? I say, I guess, okay, mom, the cheapest iPhones come in colors. They have an LCD screen, which is still perfectly fine. They do lose the home button. And yeah, they're bigger than your existing phone. That's the 10R. Then I would say, but look, they all lose the home button. And actually, every single phone will be larger than your existing phone. And if you want the smallest new phone you can get, you're going to want the 10S. It actually has the same internals the cheap phone has, but a better screen and a better camera. Then if you want to go crazy, that's the 10S Max, which is big, 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 though just a hair smaller than the iPhone 7 and 8 Pluses. But it will get you half a terabyte of storage, but it still has the same cameras, the same processors. <sighs> See, I've already lost her at that point. I think I've actually lost myself in there somewhere. So do you see what I'm saying? Do you know how confusing it was even for me to game out that scenario in my head? <laughs> Why, then, is Apple doing this? Well, Harry McCracken and Ben Thompson have some thoughts. In an article for Stratechery, Thompson argues that the new iPhone X models are all about pushing the best phone to the masses. No matter which new iPhone X you get, you're basically getting the best iPhone there is, plus or minus some minor details. That has long been a selling point of any new iPhone. The mere fact that there's a new best iPhone means people will line up to buy it. Thompson also likens the iPhone to the Mission Impossible franchise, which, of course, was alluded to in yesterday's keynote opening video. The iPhone is tech's most valuable franchise, and you can bet people are going to show up for the latest installment of the franchise, even if it's expensive or, like the Mission Impossible film, sometimes a little confusing. Harry McCracken, over in Fast Company, mused on the challenges Apple faces at this point in its iPhone journey. The product is mature, so there needs to be multiple paths for existing users to upgrade. 
That's likely why we see the spread from the comparatively low-priced iPhone XR all the way up to the expensive but amazing iPhone XS Max. Apple had to do the XR in the middle there in order to have an entry-level phone, and we all know why it exists, to be the entry-level phone that's also the best. And then there's the big phone crowd. You know there are people out there who just want the biggest iPhone. So if Apple can keep delivering even bigger iPhones, there's a market waiting to buy them. And that brings me back to what I said yesterday. Big is in. We know that the smartphone buying public likes big phones. They see big phones as premium devices, so they're willing to pay more for them. So Apple has finally officially given up on small and medium, at least for this year. As McCracken puts it, your options this year are, quote, large, very large, and very, very large, end quote. Google is killing yet another beloved product, continuing their grand tradition of doing things like this. This time on the chopping block is Inbox, the email app introduced in 2014 in a Google blog post by some guy named Sundar Pichai, who was then SVP for Android, Chrome, and Apps. But yesterday we learned that Inbox will now sunset in March of 2019. Inbox was basically a rethink of how email should work on mobile devices and sat atop the core Gmail service. It introduced features like Smart Reply, automating simple replies to simple emails, like when your colleague asks which lunch place you'd like to go to and lists three of them, just tap the one you want and your Smart Reply is ready. Inbox also tried to put the most important email up top rather than adhering strictly to the time-sorted list. It allowed you to snooze emails and bundle emails, it let you set reminders, and it helped you use your inbox as a task management system. So if that sounds familiar, that's because over the years, features from inbox have basically made their way to the core Gmail product, making inbox a little redundant. Starting in 2017, Gmail built in the smart reply feature, and last April's redesign of Gmail was heavily inspired by inbox. Reaction, though, to inbox going away is definitely mixed. Twitter user Kitsy said, First reader, now this, I'm seriously done with Google's crap. Martin Bryant tweeted, This is sad. Inbox should have continued as Google's experimental, playful take on email versus the mainstream Gmail. At The Verge, Dieter Bone wrote, Overall, it's probably good that Google is focusing on one app for email, Gmail. I'm told no employees will be laid off from the Inbox team, which was already well integrated into the Gmail team, end quote. This also got lost in all of the hubbub yesterday, but the Nintendo Switch online service is just around the corner. With a launch date set for Tuesday, September 18th, new subscribers will get a seven-day free trial. After the free trial, U.S. pricing is either $3.99 per month, $7.99 for three months, or $19.99 for a full year. If you've got a family of Switch users, you can get a $34.99 annual plan that allows up to seven family members to access the service. So what does this new service offer? Well, for one thing, it's the only way Switch users can get cloud backups of their saved games. Without that feature, if you lose or break your Switch, all your game progress is just lost. Game over, man. Beyond the backups, going forward, this service will be the only way to play certain games online, most notably Mario Kart 8 Deluxe and Splatoon. But wait, there's more. Subscribers also get access to 20 classic NES games at launch, including the original Legend of Zelda, Super Mario Bros. 3, and Dr. Mario, which 
will now have an online play component, despite being originally released in 1990. We can also assume that more classic games will come in the near future. I am recording this episode four hours before Nintendo makes its official announcement of this service, so some details might change a bit. We'll let you know tomorrow if Nintendo has any big surprises at its event later today. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. From Forbes magazine, here's the story of another unicorn you've probably never heard of, Procore Technologies. Procore provides technology for construction sites. And yes, there's plenty of tech now being used in the $1 trillion construction industry, although it has taken a little while for the industry to catch up. Founded by Tui Kortemanch way back in 2002, Procore makes the most popular software used In construction, the app does basically anything you can imagine to support a construction project, from project management to showing progress directly to a client, you know, the person whose house you're building, to making sure all the regulations are followed and permits are filed correctly. Construction projects famously have a ton of moving parts, and Procore is there to address all of them. Kortemensch founded the business after his own construction project went off the rails. At the time, he was working in HR software. When his own home construction project was moving slowly and he couldn't visualize its progress, Kortemanch did what any self-respecting nerd would do. He wrote his own software to track it. 
Then he started selling that software. Within a few years, that early Procore software was being used by Hollywood stars to track the progress of their own construction projects. Cordemanche bridged the gap between the construction industry, which accounts for almost 10% of the U.S. economy and the tech world. Early on, he found some pushback from the construction industry. According to Forbes at that moment, he thought, holy crap, I've been given a time machine. And he saw a giant market that he could serve if only he could convince the industry to get with the times. Procore was early, and actually its timing was not great. The business barely survived the financial crisis of 2008 when a booming home-building market suddenly froze up almost completely. When that happened, Cordemanche zeroed out his own salary, laid off all but five employees, and mortgaged his house to keep the company running. Most founders would have quit or pivoted, but Cordemanche doubled down and refined the software, waiting for the market to return. And then he had excellent timing. By 2010, when the iPad launched, it became a key tool for construction sites. And network access via Wi-Fi and cellular finally made it practical to use web-based software on-site. Procore blossomed. In 2014, big investment rounds started flowing in with tens of millions of dollars in funding as the product grew both in functionality and market dominance. Procore has raised $180 million in funding since 2015 and was officially valued at $1 billion in late 2016. Procore even turned down a multi-billion dollar offer to sell. Today, sales are near $200 million. The company has 1,200 employees, and an IPO is highly likely in 2019. Casey Newton maybe has soured on tech exec profiles because he feels like they've lost their utility. Well, this one is maybe more of a reading of the tea leaves. The new cover of Bloomberg Businessweek is kind of funny. It's a picture of Larry Page under a 404 error with the title reading, Page Not Found. Get it? The piece is essentially speculating about the de facto leader of Google slash Alphabet and to what degree he is still engaged in things day to day. The piece leads off with, of course, the high-profile decision by Larry Page not to show up at Congress for those recent hearings. Though I would point out that that just seems like a clever bit of strategic jujitsu. Let Facebook and Twitter soak up all the criticism about privacy and pretend that Google is somehow a different kettle of fish above it all. And also, as other people have pointed out online, Page does suffer from vocal cord paralysis, which is why most of us have been assuming he's been less high profile of late, at least in terms of public speaking. But, quote, it's not just Washington. Even in Silicon Valley, people have started wondering, where's Larry? Page has long been reclusive, a computer scientist who pondered technical problems away from the public eye, preferring to chase moonshots over magazine covers. Unlike founder CEO peers, Mark Zuckerberg comes to mind. He hasn't presented at product launches or on earnings calls since 2013, and he hasn't done press since 2015. He leaves day-to-day decisions to Pichai and a handful of others, but a slew of interviews in recent months with colleagues and confidants, most of whom spoke on condition of anonymity because they were worried about retribution from Alphabet, describe Page as an executive who's more withdrawn than ever, bordering on emeritus invisible to wide swaths of the company. Supporters contend he's still engaged, but his immersion in the technology solutions of tomorrow has distracted him from the problems Google faces today. 
What I didn't see in the last year was a strong central voice about how Google's going to operate on these issues that are societal and less technical, says a longtime executive who recently left the company, end quote. The piece does say that Page still oversees each Alphabet subsidiary, and he does still show up to those famous TGIF all-hands meetings from time to time, but it also claims that Page's workload is a far cry from the 80-hour weeks he was pulling back when he took the CEO job back from Eric Schmidt in 2011. And as has long been rumored, the piece suggests that Page just gets more juice out of the so-called moonshot projects at Alphabet. He's never enjoyed the day-to-day of running a business, at least in terms of the nitty-gritty. One interesting detail in the piece that I'd never heard before, for a time, Page was apparently obsessed with a sort of hyperloop, but for bikes. Larry has always been obsessed with that sort of thing. He wanted to replace the bus system in Ann Arbor with some sort of autonomous system back when he was at the University of Michigan. It is a bit of a long read, and I don't have a take on this myself, but Google is entering a sort of crossroads period right now. 20 years old, antitrust issues swirling. Not having a recognizable face of the company could present some sort of strategic direction issues. Although, as the piece says, quote, it's a weird moment for founder CEOs. And compared with Elon Musk smoking a blunt on a live video podcast, Page's invisibility might seem preferable. FYI, guys, if you love listening to podcasts on smart speakers, I tested out a Google Home smart speaker this past weekend, and if you've got one of those, this podcast is on there. Just say, hey, Google, play the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Use it right up. Not sure if you get that fancy picks up on your phone where you left off feature, but at least I know the podcast is there. We're on Alexa, too, of course, but only through TuneIn, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. I could theoretically do an Alexa skill where you could replace your flash briefing with the Tech Meme Ride Home. Let me know if you want me to look into that. If no one's interested, no biggie. But by the way, there's apparently an Alexa skill called AnyPod that also makes podcast listening easier on Alexa. Don't know why Amazon is making that so difficult. Oh, and for the handful of listeners who have one, we're also on Apple's HomePod. Just ask Siri to play the podcast Tech Meme Ride Home. Siri pronounces it Tetched Meme, but does queue up the latest episode. Anyway, the Tech Meme Ride Home was produced by myself and written by myself and Chris Higgins again today. Talk to you tomorrow.